0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Ezekawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Thursday, uh, November 30th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on in this broadcast, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing violence in Palestine amid the extension of a temporary truce. Yemen resistance forces say the fate of captured commercial vehicles is in the hands of Palestinians. The Sudanese armed forces have stated they will launch an offensive against the RSF. and a regional court has given the go ahead for the construction of the East Africa oil pipeline. In the second hour, we examined the South African response to the international day of solidarity with Palestine. Also, we analyzed the prospects for a permanent ceasefire in Palestine. In addition, there is a report on the impact of the war on women in Palestine. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Egyptian classical music of uh, and her orchestra. This is from an opera entitled Aga M. N. Nasmet El Ganoub. Let's listen in. Welcome back, and seems to be a technical problem uh, with uh, that particular uh, track, so we will select another uh, track uh, from the repertoire of Um uh, Kaltoon, and uh, of course, uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, today is uh, Thursday, uh, November the 30th. Uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Hi. Hey. listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast and uh, today is Thursday November 30th uh, 2023 and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just listen uh, to the Orchestra of Um Kautum uh, with the track and opera entitled Awet Ani and uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. In a heart-wrenching tragedy captured on video as violence continues uh, throughout Palestine, the world witnessed the cold-blooded killing of a pregnant Palestinian woman who was accompanying her child to school. A pregnant Palestinian woman was martyred after being stabbed by an Israeli settler in the occupied city of Al-Lid as she was on her way to drop her children off at school. Local sources reported that the victim in this stabbing incident was identified as Aya Abu Hijaz from Al-Lid. A video captured uh, by a surveillance camera documented the settler stabbing the woman in her back in front of her children. Consequently, she fell to the ground, and he continued to stab her while she attempted to defend herself. Later, another person in a private car arrived at the scene, which uh, the killer got into and fled the scene. This comes shortly after video footage surfaced depicting armed Israeli extremist settlers invading residences in the Palestinian village of Murjat in the Jordan Valley on Tuesday night. At a certain moment, uh, an Israeli extremist settler struck a Palestinian in the stomach using the butt of his rifle, subsequently aiming the weapon at him as he managed to flee. According to a classified document revealed uh, earlier today, by Israeli Channel 12, the Israeli Occupation Police Minister Itamar ben Gavir uh, has exerted pressure on senior police officers in the West Bank, urging them to avoid pursuing extremists responsible for offenses against Palestinians. Now, Israeli human rights organizations have raised significant concerns about violence against Palestinians since October 7th specifically pointing to the Israeli Occupation Forces establishing six volunteer battalions to safeguard West Bank settlements. These new reserve regional battalions consist of volunteers from Israeli settlements and occupied cities and towns who have undergone previous Israeli Occupation Forces training. Critics argue that this this has blurred the distinction between settlers and the military, allowing extremist settlers to exploit their military status for the further harassment and assault of Palestinians. Recently, footage shows two such reservists entering a Palestinian school in the southern Al-Khalil and assaulting Palestinians. Another operation was carried out in the Jordan Valley, which resulted in the injury of two Israeli soldiers. That's according to Al-Mahadeen, Israeli media reported earlier this morning that three settlers were killed and several were injured in a shooting operation in the settlement of Ramat in occupied Al-Quds. Six were injured in the operation, four of whom are in serious condition. Later in another operation, Israeli military revealed that a Palestinian ran over a number of soldiers, injuring two of them at the Bikyat checkpoint in the Jordan Valley. The Palestinian who carried out the ramming operation in the Jordan Valley was martyred after being shot. Israeli media reported that the two Palestinians who conducted the operation in Al-Quds arrived by car at the bus station and opened fire at the settlers there. Uh, They were identified as the two brothers, Murad Namir, who was 38 years old, Ibrahim Namir, who was 30 years old, from the town of Sur Bahir, south of occupied Al-Quds. They are liberated prisoners and belong to the Hamas movement. The Israeli police commander in Al-Quds reported that the Palestinians uh, who conducted the operation were killed. The Israeli Army Radio reported that preliminary investigations indicate that the operation was bipartite involving both a ramming and a shooting. Shortly after the shooting operation, Israeli occupation forces deployed units to the site. Israeli media pointed out that almost a year ago today, a similar operation had taken place in the same location. In other news, the Yemeni armed forces underlined that while they are safeguarding regional security, it would stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Ansar Allah, spokesperson Mohammed Abdul Salam, responded to the statement issued by the G7 regarding maritime security. Wherein he stressed uh, yesterday that Sanaa was committed to maritime security and that of maritime corridors. The statement G7 issued a statement warning uh, against uh, further escalation, calling on Ansarallah to halt what it said were threats to international shipping and to release the Israeli-linked vessel that they had captured earlier in the month, emphasizing the importance of maritime security. We call on all parties not to threaten or interfere with the lawful exercise of navigational rights and freedoms by all vessels. A statement by Japan, the current head of the Group of Seven, said, quote, We especially call on Ansarla to immediately cease attacks on civilians and threats to international shipping lanes and commercial vehicles and release the MV Galaxy Leader and its crew illegally seized from the international waters on November 19th, unquote, the statement read. Salam stressed that the Yemeni naval forces were committed to protecting Yemeni territorial waters as per its sovereign jurisdiction. Quote, the ship and its crew were captured in solidarity with the Palestinian people and in support of the valiant resistance in Gaza, unquote. The fate of the Israeli-linked ship, the Ansar Allah spokesman said, quote, is linked to the choices of the Palestinian resistance and what serves its goals in the battle against the Israeli aggression, unquote. Quote, the crew were dealt with according to Islamic morals and humanitarian laws, unquote, Abdul Salam added, noting that they are being allowed to contact their families. The operations of the Yemeni Navy that took place as of late quote, are exclusive to Israeli ships, unquote, which is what the naval forces had already warned about cautioning both Israeli or Israeli-linked ships prior to the capture. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African NewsWire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the Sudanese Armed Forces uh, on Tuesday announced the beginning of a ground campaign to march on the Sudanese capital to eliminate the paramilitary rapid support forces, the RSF, The army has begun a campaign, all the military areas are ready, and we will march in all directions, that's according to Yasser El-Ata, the Sudanese Armed Forces Assistant Commander in Chief, in addressing soldiers and officers at the Abdurman military area. El-Ata commended the efforts and support of the Sudanese people for the armed forces to preserve the entity of Sudan and defeat the RSF, accusing some regional and international countries and organizations of supporting the RSF. A senior Sudanese army officer was quoted on Tuesday by Sudan's al-Sudani newspaper website as saying that the Sudanese armed forces has inflicted heavy losses of lives and equipment. Drones and heavy artillery strikes were launched on Tuesday in Bahri, Abdurman and Khartoum, destroying 35 RSF positions while the army special forces conducted qualitative operations on the militia's pockets in the Jabra neighborhood of Khartoum and Abdurman, the officers said. Meanwhile, video clips posted on social media on Tuesday showed heavy columns of smoke rising in the neighborhoods of East Khartoum due to continued battles between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces uh, in Khartoum. Sudan has been witnessing deadly clashes between the Sudanese armed forces and the rsf in khartoum and other areas since april 15th which have killed up to 9,000 people by the end of october forced more than 6 million displaced within the within as well as outside of sudan and left 25 million in need of aid according to the latest sudan situation report issued on november the 12th by the u.n office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs and finally east africa regional court yesterday threw out a legal challenge uh, to the east africa crude oil pipeline project the scheme has come under fire from activists who say it will harm fragile ecosystems in areas rich in biodiversity as well as the livelihoods of tens of thousands of local people a five judge panel at the court based in the tanzanian town of arusha said the lawsuit submitted in 2020 cannot be adjudicated upon for having been filed outside the time period prescribed. The civil society groups involved said they plan to appeal the unjust ruling. Lucienne Lamacher of Natural Justice, an environmental and, and rights organization working in Africa, charged that the court had failed to give the petitioners the chance to argue their case. The judgment marks a continuation of how the global north and various government uh, institutions in Africa are blind to the destruction of the environment and the impact of oil and gas has on the climate, Limoussia said in a statement. The East African crude oil pipeline is a 1,443 kilometers, some 900 miles, heated pipeline that will run from the oil fields in Lake Albert in northwestern Uganda to Tanzania's Indian Ocean port of Tonga total Ener- energies has a 62 percent state in the pipeline with ugandan and tanzanian state-owned oil companies holding 15 percent each and china's national offshore oil corporation holding eight percent lake albert lies atop an estimated 6.5 billion barrels of crude of which about 1.4 billion barrels are currently considered recoverable uganda's first oil is expected to flow in 2025, almost two decades after the reserves were discovered, and the project has been hailed by President Yoweri Museveni as an economic boon for the landlocked country where many live in poverty. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners the Pan African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday. November 30th, uh, 2020. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Welcome back, and that was uh, Rotary Connection, the new Rotary Connection, uh, from the final album from 1971. That track was entitled Black Gold of the Sun, and this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into a segment uh, examining uh, the activities surrounding International Day of Solidarity with Palestine, which was yesterday, November 29th. This uh, is from uh, the Republic of South Africa. Uh, This segment uh, was made available by the South African Broadcasting Corporation.
0: Let's go to your News reporter, Kaili Kekomalo. He is following the International Day of Solidarity with Palestine and joins us live from Constitutional Hill. Kaili, good afternoon. At this point, you could just um, rehash what's happened and really what's happening on your end as we're speaking, in fact.
2: ...across the world, marking a very... Well, certainly quite a very significant day across the globe, marking the day of solidarity with the people of Palestine. I mean, in fact, it's recognized by the United Nations. As you know, that the Palestinians are pushing for self-determination. And this is a very critical year in light of very awful events that you have seen in Gaza. I'll be with a pause. Uh, humanitarian one at that, but uh, let's hear now from Mr. Kasseril, one of the very staunch supporters for freedom of Palestine, sir, so thank you so much indeed for your time. Uh, what do you make of today's solidarity, so many parties from ANC, EFF together under one umbrella for the Palestinians? Oh, absolutely, it's so important from that point of view.
3: And bear in mind we've had the trade unions here as well with these national parties leading our people and the community groups, including the Jews for Justice for Palestine. So it shows that we can get this unity in South Africa and be in step with international global force demanding full support for the Palestinian people, an end to the genocide, why we call for the ceasefire and we stand by the Palestinian people. We're the children of Nelson Mandela who made the statement, we South Africans can't feel free until Palestine's free. And therefore we support them. They're not alone. And they are facing the most atrocious butchery by Zionist Israel and we oppose racism, we oppose the fascist colonial oppression of the Palestinian people. We are not against the Jewish people, we are against Zionism which is a political doctrine and we have in our midst South African Jews who stand against what Israel is doing and we appeal to Jews throughout South Africa don't allow yourselves to be poisoned by the zionist doctrine because it's an absolute vicious doctrine that is counter to the values of judaism we show this unity for the palestinian people and they are going to win
2: Uh, Just before I let you go, uh, we saw the South African government calling for the international criminal court to get involved in terms of what you have seen, the very horrific events, the atrocious attacks on the hospitals in Gaza. Do do you think that's a, a fair statement? Of course it is.
3: And we're proud of this government. This government has taken the lead internationally as we should because the world supported us when we fought apartheid. The Palestinians were on our side, the stateless people. So of course, we salute this government, our president, our DERCO foreign minister. The world is applauding what South Africa's position is in sending the Israeli ambassador out, in taking the Israeli government to the International Court of Justice. This is outstanding and this is the way to support the
2: Palestinian people. Thank oh, you. Lovely. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Of course, uh, that was our former Minister of Intelligence. And thank you so much, and ever patient, uh, Mr Mbalula, the ANC Secretary-General. Sir, quite a very important day. We know that as the governing party, you have also been in touch with your counterparts in Palestine, but also denouncing what has been happening there. We are today
4: here at the Constitutional Hill, the
2: epitome of
4: uh, what uh, has ushered in in south africa uh, in terms of our democracy we are here today to make a statement joining patriots in the country our country but the people uh, of the world globally uh, calling for justice in our forward march to ensuring that we don't just add with today but we guarantee self-determination and uh, of the Palestinian people and fight the occupation and this is what is important this struggle we have been with this struggle for the longest of time as you would have heard from comrade roni that uh, the anc has never been anti-jews as it has been distorted we are against the system that oppresses people we feel deep about the pain uh, that is meted against any other person in the world uh, that goes to saharawi people and that goes to the Palestinian people. So we are here standing on the forward march on the path and the journey we are on to ensure that uh, the Palestinian people are free.
2: And just once again, Mr. Mbalila, what would be your message to the international community in terms of re support for the Palestinians, whether it's United Nations Security Council meeting to discuss this issue, and especially to the bigger powers, you know, some of the countries that are fomenting tensions. But also something that is very key would be these growing calls for a permanent ceasefire, as opposed to just a pause for humanitarian aid, where in a matter of few days, it might be a very precarious situation.
4: We want a permanent ceasefire as the African National Congress, but we also want uh, self-determination. Self-determination must come through a negotiated settlement. And uh, we as South Africa, we have been sharing experiences with uh, the people of Palestine and the Israelis. For some time now, all of those negotiations have come to a standstill and it's not through the barrel of the gun that we'll realize peace. But at the same time, the world must not, and we applaud what is happening today, and that's why as the NC we are here, that today is solidarity with the Palestinian people, because it is the Palestinian people who are stateless it is the Palestinian people who are subjected to apartheid Zionist oppression by the Israeli state. And this is what is happening here today. And uh, we have taken steps, we applaud our government for the steps they've taken to investigate genocide, uh, what is happening in Palestine today, and went to the ICC. But at the same time, take steps, including the possibility of the closure of the Israeli embassy, shut it down if there is no movement forward. But we are encouraged, working with other countries, Qatar in this instance, our government participating, resulting in the release of the hostages. There is a movement, but that movement will not end there. We want a movement that guarantees self-determination. That's how we will guarantee long-lasting peace. Mm. Uh, between the Palestinian and the Israeli uh, uh, people. And our approach as the ANC has been a, a, an approach of a two-state solution.
2: So Mr. Mbalula, are you going to call in South African executives to make sure that uh, they accelerate the process and expedite the process to make sure that diplomatically South Africa cut off this ties South- with uh, Netanyahu's administration? South
4: Africa has got support now with with due respect to the separation of powers, our parliament, supported by the ALC uh, and all political parties have voted overwhelmingly for action to be taken. From a legislative point of view, we've got support. And from the people's point of view in our country, there are voices and there are people on a daily basis who are speaking loud about ceasefire, against the genocide and supporting the efforts of our government uh, in terms of ensuring that there is self-determination for the people of Palestine so we are very much uh, uh, happy about the steps taken by government should the need arise that embassy must be shut down and uh, all efforts working with everybody must not be spared to bring about uh, long-lasting peace Uh, uh, in Palestine and the Israeli peoples, but guaranteeing the self-determination of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian state. There is no war there, it's a genocide, Netanyahu is a murderer and a killer. And as a result, it must be investigated by the ICC for what he's doing there. ANC has never supported in its uh, long history the killing of innocent people. Our own arms struggle was not directed at innocent people, was against installations and weakening apartheid machinery. So anyone who perpetrates war and a warmonger must be brought to book.
2: All right, sir, so before we let you go, your domestic issues at the ANC, the developments around uh, Azulini investment, uh, are you going to lose your head office? no we will not lose
4: our head office we are working within the legal framework uh, to ensure that uh, we fight this case Uh, but nonetheless uh, you must understand one thing and we'll still explain ourselves there are people that the ANC owes millions of rents as far as 20 years back we have entered into terms to pay them their money millions supported the ANC and then we owe them money from one election to the other. It's very expensive to run an election. Why today will the ANC oppose Ezulwini? We are opposing them because there is a fraudulent matter there. We are defeated because we have been weaker to defend the movement, right from the onset. And in this instance, we are fighting that case within the legal framework. But it is not just the ANC, the Big Brother versus the Mino we took people's banners and placards and therefore we don't want to pay them we don't work like that we pay our suppliers those we owe we are paying them off this is a fraud that's what everybody must understand we don't fight uh, a case because we owe people genuinely if we owed them the money we entered into a clean uh, above the board agreement with them to pay them we will be accountable to pay them. And we will be held accountable to pay them and pay them their money. If we lose, it's a sad day that would have lost the case to a fraudulent matter, And that is what we are pursuing as the ANC. So everyone else must understand. Even those who we have said to them, show us these um, uh, banners, I mean, we didn't have banners in our campaign. If we had so many banners, where are they? If they are in the the storage, we went to check, there are no banners there. We made an offer, we said, no, we can give you this much because you don't deserve it. But we are here where we are. And that they've exploited the law to the fullest, and that they are threatening to attach our assets. Obviously, we will fight that. And uh, our collective leadership, Uh, will deal with this matter to a point where in which we exhaust every point in terms of the legality and defend the ANC from uh, being uh, vandalized uh, by by elements in our society uh, who themselves have covered themselves nicely in the law conniving with our people inside to produce this kind of a result the ANC pays everybody it owes and even if it means for years they are patriots here who have supported this party and they have never taken us to court we owe them millions of rents from one election to the other we have never fought them for the monies that they demand because there is evidence to show that we do owe them money and that is what we are committed to to pay them off and pay their debts. they've accumulated over the years so we've got no fight with a if this matter was very genuine on the table, and as a result, there was an above board agreement. Signatures were signed without authorization. They've been able to defeat us in court in relation to that. But they were pursuing the matter including to the constitutional court. That's where we are.
2: All right, uh, Mr. Mbalula, thank you so much indeed, sir, for your time. Obviously nailing the colours to the mast about their support uh, for the Palestinian cause. As we know that uh, South Africa has been very clear, at least the South African government, in terms of its support for a two-state solution and many other measures really that are aimed at making sure that there is
5: long-lasting peace in that part of the world. Uh, so with that, back to you in studio.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was a report uh, from uh, South Africa on the uh, situation involving the International Day of Solidarity with Palestine, which was uh, yesterday on November the 29th. And uh, right now we want to go to another report on the prospects for a longer ceasefire in uh, Palestine.
6: The ceasefire in Gaza has been extended. The deal, brokered by Qatar, has given a break for Palestinians under siege and bombardment. It's also brought joy as prisoners and captives are released. But could this ceasefire be extended further? And what would it take to make that happen? This is Inside Story. Hello there and welcome to the program. I'm Laura Kyle. Nearly 15,000 Palestinians killed by Israel in just weeks, most of them women and children. But in the darkness of Israel's brutal and intense onslaught on Gaza, a glimmer of hope flickers. A four-day ceasefire has been extended to six after Hamas pledged to free more Israeli captives in return for Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails. For the people of Gaza, it means a longer break in the bombardment and more vital humanitarian supplies after weeks of siege. So what happens next? What would both sides need to give up to bring about a longer peace? Or is Israel simply going to return to war, regardless of international opinion? We'll discuss this and more with our guests in just a moment. First, this report from Umay Khulsam Sharif.
7: A much-needed ceasefire extended for another 48 hours. The four-day relative calm in Gaza saw the release of dozens of Israeli captives and Palestinian prisoners. There have been scenes of celebrations in Israel and the occupied West Bank. Qatari officials who mediated the deal along with Egypt and the United States are hopeful of more breakthroughs.
5: 20 extra hostages will be released in the next two days and uh, on the Palestinian side that would mean that uh, from Israeli jails, you'll have threefold of that number, so 60 Palestinians will be released from Israeli prisons, and uh, the same parameters of the agreement that apply. and these four days will continue when it comes to humanitarian aid and the pause in, uh, in the fighting. It is a very hopeful moment for us that we can build on that uh, momentum to increase the number of hostages being released, but also to uh, prepare the ground for more sustainable
8: uh, truth through the negotiations that are taking place.
7: In the past four days, Hamas has released more than 50 of the nearly 240 people it took captive during its attack on October 7th. In exchange, Israel has released 150 Palestinian prisoners. Earlier, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Hamas needs to release 10 captives each day to keep the ceasefire going.
8: The effort to bring the hostages home is progressing, and we'll update the families and public as things happen. We need to be patient. We're managing a framework. Nothing is final until it actually happens.
7: For Palestinians in Gaza, a ceasefire extension brings two more days of relief. The nearly 208 trucks a day have barely been sufficient for the 2.3 million Palestinians who have had little food, water and other essentials for more than 50 days.
1: We were shocked when we were told about the truce, but are not allowed to go back to our homes. We are yet to achieve a true ceasefire. We still think we are in a war. The situation is still dire and we don't have a shelter, food or water. I hope the truth can be extended and our misery can be ended. I hope we can return to our living communities and go back to our homeland to lead a normal life.
7: While there's intense international pressure to extend the ceasefire, Israel has promised to continue its war on Gaza. Many say it's collective punishment of Palestinians for an attack carried out by Hamas that killed 1,200 Israelis. But Israel's relentless bombing campaign since then has killed more than 15,000 Palestinians and displaced. 1.7 1.7 million. Umm Khusum Sharif for Inside Story. Let's bring in our guests now.
6: And in Doha, we have Mehran Kamrava, Professor of Government at Georgetown University here in Qatar. In Tel Aviv, Gideon Levy, a columnist at Herets newspaper and author of the book, The Punishment of Gaza. And in New York, Omar Rachman, a fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs, where he focuses on Middle East geopolitics and US foreign policy in the region. A very warm welcome to all of you. Mehran, this ceasefire has been extended by two days. The directors of Mossad and CIA are are here in Qatar working to try to extend it further. Are you optimistic that it can continue?
9: Well, uh, I am optimistic, but the situation is extremely fluid and complicated Mm. and very unpredictable. Uh, Lots of moving pieces. uh, And, uh, of course, there is pressure on both Netanyahu and the Israeli uh, army, as well as on Hamas, to extend the ceasefire as long as possible. Will it hold? I think it's very difficult to tell.
6: Okay, Gideon Levy, we've had uh, from Israel, we've seen that the war cabinet saying that it will return to a war as soon as the ceasefire has finished. That's indicative that it's still very much on a war fitting. Can you expand for us what pressure exists within Israel on Netanyahu and his government to extend the ceasefire as it stands?
5: The main concern in Israel is right now, obviously, releasing the hostages almost at any price. But there will come the moment, and maybe we are, we are very close to this moment, in which Israel will have to choose between continuing crashing Hamas or releasing the hostages. Until now, they are trying to play on both and it is working because the claim is that the only leverage they have now on Hamas is threatening them with continuing the war, but you know two days and another two days of truth, but there are only two days and two days and what come next and the problem is that nobody has a clue what is the end game and nobody has a clue how far can you can you stretch those threats without getting in into the south part of Gaza. Mm. Once Israel will do this, it might really risk the rest of the hostages, which are still in big numbers.
6: We'll look at the south part of Gaza in just a moment, uh, later in the discussion. Omar, first of all, uh, we know that Hamas needs to release 10 of the captives that it has every single day for the ceasefire to keep continuing. How long can it do that for?
8: I mean that's a very good question, um, and based on the statements that have uh, come out of Hamas as well as the Qatari government, um, it's said that you know again these are women and children that are being released uh, first as part of this. Framework. Uh, So it's about retrieving women and children, and it it suggests, based on the statements, that a lot of those women and children are in the hands of other groups, not just Hamas, and that Hamas has to find them. Uh, And I hate to talk about hostages in these terms, but it's you know, in a sense, a a finite uh, resource, a finite commodity to trade with, to border with uh, for prisoners. And so you know, Hamas has to find them. The ones it has. Uh, you know, it can, if it's 10 a day, then based on how many people are, you know, simple mathematics in terms of how long the truce can extend. And I imagine that the dynamics uh, of negotiations will change when it comes to the release of uh, adult males, especially uh, soldiers that are being held uh, in Gaza by Hamas. Uh, they may uh, take a different price. I don't think necessarily that they will release them uh, for, you know, 30, 30 prisoners uh, for a day of truce.
10: Mm.
6: Gideon, do you agree with that? Do you think that there will, be, will come a, a change in dynamics once all the women and children are out of Gaza and there's only adult males and soldiers remaining at that point? Do you think Netanyahu will feel the pressure come off him?
5: I think the division line will be, there is another stage which will be the elderly men and the sick persons. But, and, and finally, the core will be the soldiers and there are dozens Mm. of soldiers. And when it gets to soldiers, the whole rules of the game will be totally different. I think in Israel they understand it very well. Then it will be really the dilemma all for all, or, God forbid, risking
1: their lives.
6: Um, uh, Mehran, Qatar has said that the negotiations going on here are difficult, that they're delicate. Obviously they're not giving... Anything away, but what areas are you aware of that you believe to be particularly fragile in these negotiations?
9: Well, um, you know, Qatar is not uh, part of the Abraham Accord, and although it has long had open lines of communication with Israel, uh, I think uh, that, that right there is an, uh, is a potential complicating factor. The other complicating factor is the actual logistics. The uh, location of the hostages, the situation uh, on the ground in Gaza, there's death and destruction all around, there's been rain. Uh, Just the logistics of getting aid, um, making sure that the hostages are released, coordinating with the different countries from which the different hostages come, uh, making sure that Palestinian prisoners Uh, that are being released uh, are are actually being released and are not uh, taken back again. So there's lots of um, uh, details, and as we know, the devil is in the details. Working out all these uh, logistical details is, uh, is extremely difficult.
6: Omar, given all those logistical challenges on top of the ideological challenges in the first place, are you surprised that we've actually got this far into a fifth day of a ceasefire?
8: Uh, No, I'm not completely surprised. Obviously, uh, pressure has built on both sides. The carnage that's been waged Against the Gaza Strip has put a lot of pressure uh, on Hamas to. to um, I mean, although Hamas was trying to uh, negotiate the release mm. of many of these hostages, especially the children and the women, early on, uh, and Israel was unwilling to listen to that because it wanted to not, did not want to have a ceasefire and wanted to wage uh, this war. But on the opposite side, again, pressure built internally uh, on the Israeli government from uh, from you know the families of hostages from the society at large uh to have the return of of hostages back into israel and so you have those type of dynamics so that i think added pressure on both sides uh to come to terms here and now at this point i think there's a little bit of momentum uh behind the temporary ceasefire the pause itself uh and of course we you know we can't forget the american side of things the qatari side and the egyptian side but for the americans in particular um and maybe you'll you'll get to this question but uh, you know there are interests for the United States government mm. uh, to push for ceasefire, not only in the release of its own uh, citizens, but uh, in terms of you know mitigating some of the outrage that's building on the streets mm. globally, internally, and extension within the State Department, etc.
6: Absolutely, we will get onto some international uh, reaction and pressure uh, in a moment. First of all, Omar, what what might trip up the momentum that we've been seeing so far?
8: Well, I think Bahrain uh, alluded to, you know, just the, the complexity of the issue itself. Uh, logistically speaking, uh, clearly, obviously, the parties don't trust each other at all. Uh, so there, you know, we saw in the first day or the second day of the release, you know, a delay that happened because Hamas felt that uh, Israel was not abiding by the terms of the agreement. Obviously, logistically, uh, these things are very difficult. Um, You know, I mentioned earlier that not all the hostages are being held by Hamas. Mm. Israel has been Mm. bombarding the Gaza Strip this whole time. We don't know how many of those hostages have been killed through this process. Uh, There's a total siege on the Gaza Strip in terms of food and water. You know, are those other people that don't have the uh, infrastructure to hold uh, these hostages, like Hamas has, because we've seen that the hostages that are released are in good condition, seem, you know, have, have been fed and even even bathed to some extent. So, you know, we don't know what the conditions of the other hostages that are being held, where they are, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, anything could trip this up. Mm. And also, G- one, one more thing. Okay, go
6: ahead. i was gonna move on to Gideon, because this ceasefire, it's allowed both sides to take a bit of a breather, to look up. The Israeli public was very much on side of the war, by and large. Now that we're seeing, as Omar says, hostages being returned, they're in relatively good health, Hamas is abiding by terms of the agreement, what is the Israelis' public opinion towards the war? We've got Mark Regev, the senior advisor uh, to the government, saying that the public is 100% united and saying we refuse to live any longer next to this terrorist enclave. Is that the case?
5: I'm, a very, I'm very, very afraid that uh, Mr. is on this time right, uh, but it all depends first of all on the hostages. Israel is now totally preoccupied with the hostages. Day and night, Israelis see the hostages who come back, moon those who didn't come back. It's all very, very emotional, and there is no space for anything else right now. Israel's public opinion, Israel's media is dealing only with the hostages. Don't forget, we are dealing with babies, with women, with old people, with sick people, and with soldiers. Now, when it will come to the point in which the decision will be, will have to be made, either to continue the war or to stop it, my guess is that this government will have to continue, because if they stop now, they achieved very little. Mm. If they release the hostages, that's one goal. But they are far from crushing Hamas. The question is if it's possible at all. The question is where will the Israeli public opinion stand there because it has a price also in Israeli terms, not only in terms of Gaza. My hope is that the dynamics will create a new reality, but unfortunately I'm not sure this is going to happen and we might see another part of this war, this terrible war with more horrible scenes as we saw until now.
6: Mehran, what do you think will happen when the hostages stop coming back?
5: I'm afraid
9: Gideon is uh, spot on uh, for his own domestic uh, political reasons. Netanyahu cannot afford to stop the war, and um, this is uh, the, uh, you know an al- almost a foregone conclusion that he has to politically for his own political survival uh, have some tangible accomplishment after all of this death and destruction, not much having been accomplished in terms of his stated goal. So uh, I'm not too optimistic uh, looking down the line.
6: Omar, we've got uh, U.S. Secretary of State Andy Blinken back in the region on Friday. Let's look at what the pressure is from the U.S. at this current point in time. What message is he going to be bringing for the Israeli government?
8: Well, I think he's going to, you know, again, be pushing uh, just a change of tone, if nothing else. Um, First of all, for the release of uh, the rest of the hostages. I think that is kind of critical uh, from the U.S. standpoint. Uh, But again, that has a kind of a time limit on it. And then Israel, like your other guest said, and I agree with, uh, will likely try to continue this war uh, for a number of reasons. Um, But, you know, this is having an impact on the U.S., right? I think, you know, in spite of the unconditional support the United States has offered uh, the Israeli government in this campaign, this military campaign against the Gaza Strip, uh, there, you know, it's, there is outrage on the streets in the United States uh, globally. There's a, an impact on the United States standing globally. There's dissension within the ranks of the State Department. Uh, some, you know, Democratic senators and congressmen are starting to peel off. And so it's getting very difficult for the U.S. Uh, to, you know, continue on with this kind of no red line, unconditional support for Israel without at least uh, offering some lip service um, in terms of civilian casualties you know some performative gestures uh, in terms of you know allowing aid in and again uh, obviously aid is very important 200 trucks is very important but it's a drop in the bucket in terms of what's needed even in the best of times and we're in the absolute worst of times in the Gaza Strip so uh, you know the the outrage that's building in terms of the catastrophe that's happening in Gaza Strip and the fact that Israel has No stated aims here besides the elimination of Hamas, which many point to as as likely an impossible goal. Mm. I mean, what is the the end game? What's the day after? So uh, none of those things have been answered.
6: And Mehran, Israel has always said that it it had limited window to carry out this war. Is that window... Closing. It's interesting that even today we have the German foreign minister calling for Israel to take de-escalatory measures amid this ceasefire. We haven't really heard that language coming from Germany yet. We've got Spain, Bulgaria also falling on the side of the Palestinians, although broadly the EU is still staunchly behind Israel. But is there more of a shift and is Israel losing the wider support that it had?
9: absolutely the long uh, the longer this war continues uh, the more the reputational cost uh, for israel uh, the attack of october 7th was horrendous but since then uh, we see uh, a daily barrage of death and destruction of palestinians and so the reputational cost for israel is is beginning to put uh, beginning to turn global public opinion uh, uh, towards the Palestinian cause. Finally, as you mentioned, even uh, a country like Germany that uh, has been noticeably silent is now uh, calling for restraint uh, by Israel.
6: Gideon, you mentioned before that uh, Israel has said that Hamas has a command and control center in South Gaza. Do we think that that is going to be the new front line should Israel go back in and fight once again?
5: I don't see any other front line. I mean, if you stick to the original goal, namely crashing Hamas, or crashing the capabilities of Hamas, you have to go to the south. Now the south is now overpopulated with more than one million uh, refugees who left the the north. How can you uh, launch a war there? This is beyond my... my, uh, understanding especially if there will be now more limits by the world who will not be ready to see much more of the bloodbath that we saw in the first part of the war so on one hand you understand that israel cannot climb down of the tree a very tall tree mainly the israeli government as long as there are no real achievements except of releasing the hostages on the other hand Continuing this war means uh, continuing atrocities and and catastrophes. I think much will depend on the United States and on the pressure that the United States will be ready to put on Israel, but not pressure in words, because pressure in words will be hollow. If Mm. the United States will really feel that it must stop this war by taking actions, then the war will stop.
6: Omar, if Israel doesn't go after Hamas in the south, what does the exit plan look like?
8: Well, I'm of the belief, along with many other analysts, that, uh, you know, there is no real exit plan here, that the, the goal here is much larger, much more destructive uh, to the, you know, people of Gaza, and Gaza as, a, as an entity itself, that, I mean, if we look at what we're talking about here, um, you know, what is... Israel's uh, ultimate objective, um, you know, Netanyahu said yesterday to his Likud party, it was reported in Israel, that I'm the only one that can prevent a Palestinian state after the war. What that means is there is no intention whatsoever to deal with the underlying political uh, uh, conditions, the underlying political problem here. And what does that leave? That leaves a military issue. Now, for the past 16 years, while Hamas has ruled the Gaza Strip, Israel has implemented a a policy of containment here, uh, and that has failed, right? It bombarded Gaza numerous times to kind of crush and cow uh, the Palestinian resistance there, and that failed. So now the equation from Israel, I mean, the calculus seems to be, well, let's just, you know, foist the people of Gaza on uh, neighboring countries, on Egypt and the rest, and clear out the Gaza Strip through making it uninhabitable to the people, destroy all the civilian infrastructure, destroy the homes, kill as many people as possible, uh, and, you know, just uh, and cut off food and water and all life-sustaining uh, basic necessities. And so that looks like the goal from my perspective. And if Israel keeps its military in there, uh, I think it's willing to play the long game, not provide cool. services keep Gaza destroyed, and hopefully the population uh, you know, whittles away. It, 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 it leaves, and there's pressure built on Egypt and others to kind of take in those people. I think that is the kind of prevailing strategy from Israel at the moment.
6: No, I can see you nodding there, but the, but the pressure on Israel will have to, uh, sorry, on Egypt will have to be huge, won't it? Because right from the start it has said it does not want a stream of Palestinians setting up uh, within its borders.
9: Absolutely. It is a sad day when I'm thinking what I'm about to say. I sincerely hope we're not seeing history repeat itself. Mm. I hope we're not seeing 1947-48, 1967-1973. I hope we're not seeing another wave of Palestinian refugees streaming out of Uh, Gaza, uh, out of the West Bank, out of historic Palestine, and I sincerely hope that the goal here is not necessarily to depopulate Palestine even further of Palestinians, but I'm afraid if we listen carefully to the statements of Israeli policymakers, that many of them have that intention.
6: Gideon, I can see you nodding there as well. You agree with that? And counter to that, what, what could be a lasting solution?
5: I agree to this out of great fear and anxiety that this is going to happen. Uh, yes, uh, many politicians mentioned it already by name. Minister of Agriculture, former head of the Shabak, called it the second Nakba of the Palestinians or the second Nakba of Gaza. I wouldn't ignore those voices, but I still have some hope mainly on the international community, that that this community will be able to stop it, because otherwise we are going to horrible, horrible phenomena. I mean, don't forget that people of Gaza, 60% of them are sons and grandsons and grand-grandsons of refugees who still live in refugee camps. Are we going to kick them away another time? I really hope this is not going to happen, but I cannot exclude it, by all means not. If it depends on this government, they don't have any other plan. But we should suggest another plan. We should talk about an international intervention in Gaza. We should talk about maybe exiling the leadership of Hamas without killing them. We should think about anything which will avoid continuing this war.
6: Omar, I'm conscious that we haven't actually brought Hamas into this discussion yet. We've got a couple of minutes left. Is there any room for manoeuvre there? Is there anything that Hamas can do or that the international community can do to pressure Hamas' survival within or next to Israel?
8: I mean, that's a good question. I'm not sure what Hamas can do. Um, I mean, there's been calls for Hamas to, you know, raise the white flag, uh, step out of its, um, you know, its hiding places and its infrastructure and give up. Maybe that'll happen. I, I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, Hamas is a resistance organization. Um, you know, there are, that is something that happened to the PLO uh, in the 1980s uh, when Israel invaded Lebanon, and there was a kind of an agreement made. Finally, uh, after you know, wanton destruction on Beirut and the PLO uh, you know, infrastructure uh, and the, this, uh, the refugee camp infrastructure for the PLO you know, fighters and political uh, cadres to to leave Lebanon. So maybe there's a possibility that Hamas uh, follows a similar fate. Uh, but I don't know, I know based on its entrenchment, whether it's willing to take that path and what the implications of that uh, would be.
6: Okay, lot the of questions there at the end of this discussion, but for the moment we'll have to leave it there. Many thanks to you all for joining us here today, Mehran Kamrava, Gideon Levy, and Omar Rahman. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website. That's com. For further discussion, do go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on X. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Laura Kyle, and the whole team here in Doha.
1: It's bye for now. Oh, welcome back. And uh, that was a panel discussion on uh, the potential for the immediate future of a long-term ceasefire in Palestine. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, November the 30th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Thank you. Welcome back, and that was uh, Phyllis Hyman with the track entitled Loving You, Uh, Losing You. And uh, right now we want to move into another uh, segment uh, dealing with the impact of the war in Gaza on the women uh, in that population. Most of the uh, people killed in Israeli airstrikes have been women and children. Let's listen in uh, to uh, this report, uh, which examines uh, this element uh, of the conflict uh, that is going on right now
0: in uh, Palestine. The United Nations says Palestinian women have borne the brunt of Israel's onslaught in Gaza. Two-thirds of those killed in a war purportedly against Hamas are women and children. Why are so many women victims, and what can the world do to protect them? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Fully Batibo. Israel went to war in Gaza on the premise of destroying Hamas. Instead, in obliterating vast areas of the Gaza Strip, it's killed or maimed tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians and forced more than 1.8 million to flee. Many have no homes to return to as they have been destroyed by Israeli and Western-supplied bombs. The United Nations says women and children have suffered the most in Israel's Relentless bombardment combined. They make up nearly 70% of the dead So what difficulties do Palestinian women face living under constant attack? And what's the world saying or doing about it? We'll be putting those questions and more to our guests in just a few minutes, but first this report from Alexandra Bias
11: The mothers of Palestine's future are being wiped out the UN says Israeli strikes kill two mothers every hour in Gaza, seven women every two hours, leaving Palestinian men and children to mourn the most fundamental figure in their lives. (laughs) The women of Gaza hold their world together and give life to future generations, and they're suffering unprecedented tragedy. I am in the
12: ninth month of pregnancy
13: and I was unable to walk with great difficulty until we reached Rafah.
11: We saw this with
13: our own eyes. We felt that we were dying and we had nothing. Life was very difficult.
11: The UN says there are 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza. More than 5,000 are due to give birth within a month in unimaginable conditions.
12: 180 women are delivering babies every day without water, without painkillers, without anesthesia for T-sections, without electricity for incubators, and without medical supplies. Yet, they continue to care for their children, for the sick, for the elderly, mixing baby formula with contaminated water when they find it, going without food so that their children can live another day.
11: Day after day, women do what they can to keep their families safe, fleeing Israeli bombs on foot. It's the road that leads to death. It's like the apocalypse. It's
0: difficult, very difficult. We walk and walk and walk. There are those who have lost sons and daughters, the wounded, pregnant women.
11: Searching for shelter and salvaging food.
0: Life is not normal. We are 127 people sleeping here in this room. Our husbands, brothers,
11: and sons are sleeping outside. All without any real hope for peace and nowhere near enough humanitarian aid. But day after day, they refuse to give up.
13: This is not
6: the first time it's been destroyed. It was demolished in 2008, in 2014,
12: and now in 2023, and it will likely be demolished again. But we will rebuild it
11: again. So far, more than 4,000 Palestinian women have been killed by Israeli bombs, a number that's likely to rise. But in spite of these seemingly insurmountable odds, Palestinian women are determined to survive. Alexandra Byers for inside story
0: Well, let's now bring in our guests for today's show in Ramallah in the occupied West Bank is Noor Odeh, a political Analyst and former spokeswoman for the Palestinian task force on public diplomacy in occupied East Jerusalem is Yara Hawari senior analyst at Al Shabaka the Palestinian policy network and host of the rethinking Palestine podcast and in Cape Town, South Africa, is Heather Barr, Associate Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. Ladies, welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. Noor O'Day in Ramallah, let me start with you. Is Israel's war, you think, deliberately targeting Palestinian women? Thank you, Foley.
13: I, I think Israel's war is deliberately targeting the fundamentals of life, in Gaza. Uh, And in that sense, it it would go without saying that it is targeting women and children and affecting them most adversely. When you see that entire neighborhoods have been wiped out, that the medical infrastructure of an entire society has been debilitated, has been uh, completely destroyed, the people who will feel that destruction uh, first and most will be the women. And children, uh, the displacements will affect them the most. And so in a way, I think, yes, they are the primary targets because if the women can't handle all of that pain and all of that uh, agony, if they can't survive this war that really the society itself can't because they're in, in Palestine in particular, and after so many years of oppression and occupation, they're the glue that mm. holds society together. It's the women who do right. that.
0: And Noor, interestingly and significantly, all women killed in this conflict in Gaza have come from all walks of life. They were journalists, they were UN workers, they were uh, health care workers. As well.
13: Absolutely. And, and that will have a long term impact on everything, on all walks of life, on services, on uh, different professions, on the way the society will function even after the war is over. Nothing basically will be
0: the same. Mm. Yara, let me get your thoughts. What do you think the impact of this war has been on palestinian uh, women 's rights and dignity
12: when i And foremost, I think it's important to note the absence of Palestinian women in Gaza on this panel. For Palestinian women, there are different experiences of violence at the hands of the Israeli regime. And for decades, Palestinian women in Gaza have been at the forefront of that violence. So only they can speak to that from a place of experience. Indeed, and we have tried
0: to to reach Palestinian women in Gaza, but, you know, there are connectivity issues as well. And it's been extremely difficult, but we have tried to, to reach out to them.
12: Yeah. I was just about to say that so many of them are not able to share um, you know, their experiences in this moment because communications are deliberately being limited um, and also because surviving the ongoing genocide is is understandably taking precedence. And you know, I think it's very difficult at this moment to get accurate figures on, on who's been killed, but we do know that at least 15,000 Palestinians um, have been killed and there are further 7,000 under the rubble, and of that 15,000, two-thirds are, are women and children, at least 6,000 children. Um, and at least 4,000 women and probably the same amount of men. And there is this tendency to put women and children in the same category. And I think it stems from the understanding that in war and conflict, they are the most vulnerable. Uh, And I think it's important to highlight that vulnerability. But I also think we have to give agency to Palestinian women. um, And I think we have to be careful that we don't... Uh, depoliticize them. They are adults, and they are in their own category. Um, and I think, you know, inevitably, um, in situations of conflict, in war, and genocide, because of existing. Patriarchal structures of gendered issues that disproportionately affect women. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think women are going to be, you know, uh, disproportionately affected in, right. in, in, the, in the ongoing genocide in Gaza, which is incredibly, incredibly brutal. Which is targeting, you know, residential buildings. Which is targeting health services. Which is even targeting UN shelters. Mm-hmm. So, as Nour said, the Israeli regime is essentially targeting Palestinian life in Gaza, and inevitably, you know, women will be a part of that.
0: And, and Yara, you raise an important point, which I'll come back to, to Noor with in just a few minutes, the role of Palestinian women in Palestinian society and how they're viewed Noor. But I want to bring Heather into the conversation uh, uh, first. Heather, uh, uh, Yara mentioned that in uh, war and conflict, and not just in Gaza, but around the world, very often it's the women and children that bear the brunt of the violence. Talk to us about the difficulties Palestinian women are facing currently in Gaza under constant attack and what the world is saying and doing about this.
14: Well, you've covered a lot of this um, in the in the intro to this segment and, and the other speakers have as well. I mean, it's a... It's an unspeakable situation for everyone, of course, but it affects women and girls in, in some specific ways. Um, obviously, the, the collapse of the healthcare system is is one clear area where, um, you know, it's, it's pregnant women who are experiencing a crisis, but it's not only them. It's, it's anyone who's trying to get regular healthcare, including sexual and reproductive healthcare, Um, which is is suddenly going to be unavailable to people. Um, It's it's also about the role of women as caregivers because, Mm -hmm. of course, we know that caregiving is very gendered. And so, um, you know, trying to find clean water to make formula for a baby um, is more likely to be the task of of women than of men. Um, There are also a bunch of issues around sanitation and and menstrual hygiene, um, and and also issues about... um, you know, we know that in conflict, one of the things that often happens is an escalation in sexual violence. And you're suddenly in an environment where any types of services and prevention will, will not be functioning at all in this type right. of a crisis.
0: Heather, it is the plight of Palestinian women in Gaza right now, do you think it's registering strongly in, in uh, the Western world, in Western media? Why isn't there more noise made about the plight of, of Palestinian women right now?
14: well you know i think um as as often happens the the situation as it specifically relates to women and girls gets drowned out by by um broader discussions of political issues um i mean one of the points that i think is really important is that 23 years ago, um, Security Council passed Resolution 1325, which said that women are supposed to be full participants in all discussions about peace. Mm -hmm. And we see that all these years later, that's ignored all the time, even in processes led by the UN. And, And you see the consequences of that, I think, in a lot of places around the world.
0: All right. Noor, let me come to you about this this issue. The Gaza war has certainly shown the centrality of women to the Palestinian cause and we see this every day. Talk to us about the function and role of women in Palestinian society today and how they're viewed.
13: Well I think one of the things that uh, this war has uh, demonstrated and has uh, also ironically showed is the centrality of women in Palestinian society, and it has humanized our men uh, for a change. It has shown our men and how attached they are to their mothers, to their wives, to their sisters. The fact that they can get emotional, that they can cry, that they grieve for the loss of those central figures in the family um, over over the past decades and since the uh, Palestinian women have been uh, the heart and soul of. The palestinian people they're the ones who were able to preserve our identity as a nation to keep uh, uh the the um not just the nation alive but to keep generations of palestinians knowing who they are being proud of who they are knowing where they come from and also not succumbing to the dehumanization to the denial of existence to the systemic uh, um, um attempts, political and violent and otherwise, of telling Palestinians not only that they don't have rights, but that they don't really exist as a nation. Without the women, this would not have been possible. This is people who... and and live all over the world and still share an identity. But but no, I mean,
0: isn't the reality a bit more complicated in terms of political participation and decision-making for Palestinian women?
13: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the many injustices that we face in this still traditional patriarchal society, that we are central and everybody understands that. But women still uh, have a very, um, I I would say, you know, uh, steel ceiling. Uh, when it comes to political participation. There are icons mm-hmm. of Palestinian uh, politics and resistance who are women. But really, when it comes to decision-making, when it comes to the so-called Palestinian leadership, it is basically a room full of older men. And women are excluded, um, you know, regardless of, of how effective they are, of how respected they are, or they could be in their own community. So those problems still persist, and we are a long way from achieving what we want as women yes. in society in terms of political participation. But I think socially and emotionally, um, during this war, and and and, and ones before, maybe because this war was, this is an especially brutal war, the centrality of women in families and in society in general has taken central stage because so many were lost, and yep. with them, the, the balance of a family,
0: of a, of a whole community. Yara, yeah, your thoughts about what Noor said there, and what do you think the role and function of Palestinian women is, not just you know, in times of conflict, but in these last 70-plus years of occupation? What has, what, how are they viewed within the Palestinian uh, society and the communities they live in? Well, Palestinian
12: women have long been politicized individuals and agents, not just as wives, sisters or mothers, uh, but also as, as fighters, as as political organizers, as leaders with, with agency that isn't defined by their relationship to men. And, and not only as you know, these reproductive bodies, you know, looking back at throughout Palestinian history, Palestinian women have always been present and active at crucial political and and national moments. Uh, And they've constantly had to navigate you know, all these various tensions between feminism, nationalism, and anti-colonial struggle. And that hasn't stopped, that's been a continuous process um, of, of existence uh, and resistance within, within that colonial context. Um, and I think, you know, hearing from, from, from colleagues and, and friends on the ground in Gaza, you know, they're really continuing that, that legacy. Um, women often, you know, bear the brunt in globally um, when, it, when it comes to situations of, of genocide uh, and of war. Um, and in Palestine, that's no different. And, in Gaza, you know, where there is basically no food, no clean water, um, the threat of bombardment looming, um, you know, basic life chores are, are nearly impossible, hmm. uh, and so. It's the women that really are are bearing the the brunt of of, of keeping their their families alive, keeping their children warm, keeping uh, the sick and injured, uh, making sure that they're taken care of um, and surviving in these kinds of conditions is is unbelievably difficult and, yeah. and no one should be forced to, to live in these kinds of conditions.
0: Yeah, Heather, maybe your thoughts about this. You know, we we talked about the war in Gaza right now, but there's also been 75 plus years of of occupation. What has that meant for Palestinian women? The impact of of the occupation on on Palestinian women's legal, their social, their economic and, and political status, whether in Gaza or the occupied West Bank?
14: No, it's, I mean absolutely, and, and my organization has written a lot about um, the impact of the blockade over the years um, on the people in Gaza, and, and of course that, like this conflict, will have had a disproportionate impact on women and girls. And and you know it's it's important to recognize the leadership that they've been able to to provide in spite of that, but but no one should have to face those kinds of challenges. Um, and and one of the things that's striking. To me, you know, watching from a distance and, and trying to learn about um, the, the activism that's happened, mm. um, calling for peace in, in Palestine and Israel is about how much that's been led by women and how, you know, there have been some, some powerful organizations that have brought together women um, from both sides to, to right. call for peace in spite of the fact that they keep being excluded from these high-level discussions.
0: But what about Western feminists? Uh, Heather, you know, uh, uh, um, Yara mentioned feminism there and and Western feminism seems to tie women's activism to certain roles and frameworks. Why is the struggle of of Palestinian women in much of the West unseen above the image of of the weeping mother, you know, the the victim and so on? Why are are the struggles of non-Western societies not considered uh, as part of the women's struggle?
14: Well, I mean, feminism is a work in progress like, like everything else and there have been a lot of powerful critiques in, in recent recent years of, of what people call white feminism and, mm. and those critiques are pretty valid and I would just say that Palestinian women are not the only ones feeling neglected by, by Western or white feminism um, and I think there's a lot of work that, um, that some of the women's rights activists who have more access to the corridors of power in, in Washington or in Europe can do to be in solidarity with women in other parts of the world, including Palestine.
0: Okay. Noor, perhaps you, you want to add uh, to that, that the, the way Western, you know, feminism perhaps neglects the issue of Palestinian women. Yeah.
13: And I, I think it's very noteworthy. We've seen a lot of, um, a lot of protests, a lot of solidarity with the Palestinians, but there are some groups that we're missing. Hmm. Um, and there are some, you know, um, uh, Noteworthy, uh, I think, absences, including the uh, tying women's struggle and feminist uh, uh, goals with what what is happening with what Palestinian women are enduring, including solidarity with Palestinian journalists, and many of whom are women. They've done an amazing uh, job. They're enduring the unbearable, and they're braving very, very dangerous conditions. And yes, I didn't see enough right. of that uh, solidarity, but it is... You know, as your guest said, it it is unfortunately um, something that is not new. It is a sign of so-called white feminism, and I think we need to more and more elevate the voices of uh, the feminists in the South, so to speak, that does not perhaps fit in the box of mainstream feminism, and it needs to be accepted for what it is rather than be made something else.
0: Y- Yara, your thoughts about this, your, your thoughts about, you know, what makes Gaza's women invisible in, in in the eyes of Western feminists, perhaps?
12: Well, I think it's first and foremost, I think it's important to clarify because I don't want there to be a misunderstanding mm. that the majority of Palestinian women are not calling for peace. They're calling for justice and for right. an end to colonial occupation. And the majority of Palestinian women view their struggle through that anti-colonial lens. And I think that misrepresentation of Palestinian women is another consequence of white feminism, which which inevitably depoliticizes Palestinian women. And we are seeing that again, um, through the narratives on women in Gaza, where we talk about the humanitarian situation, which is incredibly dire, but that focus on the humanitarian situation without putting it in its correct political context, which is one of uh, colonial occupation, of Israeli colonial occupation, does a disservice not only to Palestinian women, um, but to, to feminism uh, and to women in the, in the Global South. And I think it's incredibly important to emphasize that what's happening in Gaza isn't inevitable. You know, we are looking at political actions and decisions that are forcing Palestinian, Palestinians in Gaza, including Palestinian women, into these Conditions, You know, this literally could end tomorrow if there was the political will to do so. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have that political will because Palestinians, including Palestinian women, have been dehumanized for so yeah. long um, that there is limited will to, to stop, to take stand against the Israeli regime from continuing this genocide.
0: All right. Heather, Yara said there are political actions and decisions that have, that have an impact on, on women in Gaza, but this is again happening in conflicts around the world, women bearing the brunt of the violence, but at the same time being excluded from the political process. How do we change that? How do we protect these women in these conflict zones and make sure that they are part of the political decision-making process?
14: Thanks. I mean first I just wanna I want to thank you, Yara, for your comments and that clarification. And I'm sorry if it sounded like I was I was saying something different. Um, Um, Yeah, I think it's a a very hard question to answer about how we change this. I think that um, lifting up women leaders is is one way to do that. If we had more women in key political positions around the world, I think that that would make some difference, although, of course, we know that um, being a feminist and being a a woman leader are not always the same thing. Um, I think trying to make bodies like the UN um, follow their own words and and do keep the promises that they've made um, and reminding them of that again and again and 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 lifting up the voices of women um, from from countries that are experiencing conflict from countries where, um, you know, you're seeing women being disproportionately killed, um, bringing their voices actually to places like the Security Council and hearing from them directly is something powerful that, that I know there are people working to do, but it doesn't happen enough and there isn't enough space.
0: All right. Uh, Noor Ode in Ramallah. Palestinian women, as we've heard and said during this conversation are not just victims they are central to the palestinian cause and the existence Mm -hmm. of of the palestinian people as you said yourself rests on them so what should the international community be doing and what should the palestinian people be doing to protect these women well i think right now the
13: international community should be doing the bare minimum which is to get a ceasefire to end uh, this aggression and to um uh, find a way that uh, has a political horizon that meets the aspirations of Palestinians. Um, And I regrettably don't see that um, materializing at the moment. I don't see that um, being in the offing uh, or in the discussions, unfortunately, not yet anyways. But for Palestinians, I think in terms of protection, regrettably, I don't think there's a lot that can be done. Part of the reason why so many women are dying in one strike, for example, is because so many are displaced. And as we saw in the report at the beginning, the women stay in one place to kind of give them some space and some privacy, while the men either stay in the right. hall or outside or in the yard of the of the school shelter. So, mm. when when there is a strike, they they go in groups. They go mm. and and basically with them entire families. So. A, It breaks my heart to say this, but you know there is just no no safe place for physical safety in Gaza. But a lot can be done once this war is done. A lot can be done to elevate women, and and part of it has to do with us Palestinian women learning how to work with one another and how to respect, you know, the version of feminism we ascribe to, because there are so many different shades and colors of that. And I think one of the most interesting components perhaps, and and the most recent relatively, is the uh, uh, women who uh, hail from more conservative, more uh, religious uh, political groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad who are or who consider themselves to be feminists. They need to have an active role in collaborating with other feminist leaders to speak about it, to elevate female voices, and to make sure that women are part not just of the overall uh you know social fabric that's part of the political conversation and the decision making and and that when it comes time to for those big uh, uh conversations, for for those big discussions women women are not kept outside of the room uh we can do that if there is that camaraderie so to speak between women coming from different uh political affiliations and different uh social uh, um ideologies whether it's progressive or conservative mm-hmm.
0: All right, Yara, I think I'll give you the last word. What, Yara, do you think should be done to protect and empower Palestinian women?
12: I think, you know, in the immediate term, there has to be a ceasefire uh, so that, you know, Palestinians in Gaza are no longer, you know, facing bombardment. Um, And with a ceasefire, obviously, you know, the bombs will stop and and maybe the siege will be lifted. Um, But it doesn't stop there because, Palestinians will still not be free, and I think this terrible moment that we're experiencing now is also a pivotal one for the Palestinian struggle. I think it necessitates an insistence um, that this colonial occupation uh, can no longer continue. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's I think Palestinians across the world. Um, are gaining solidarity among other groups. I think there is a connection, um, uh, solidarity connections that is unprecedented, including among feminist groups. And amidst all of this, this horror and amidst this ongoing genocide, I think that is one of the few uh, areas of optimism and hope that we can see where this interconnectedness, these solidarity networks are recognizing that, that Palestine is, is pivotal to the politics of liberation uh, and to a fairer and more just world.
0: Ladies, thank you very much for a very important conversation, an insightful discussion. Thank you. Noor Odeh, Yara Hawari, Heather Barr. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you, too, for joining us and for watching this program. You can uh, watch it again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And, of course, you can join the conversation on X. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Fully Batibo, and the whole team here in Doha, thanks for watching. Bye for now. And that
1: was a panel discussion on the impact of the Israeli siege upon Gaza, uh, the impact on women. Uh, The majority of people, as was enunciated in the previous uh, segment, who have been killed are women and children uh, in the face of the Israeli Defense Forces, bearing the brunt uh, of uh, the genocidal war that is unfolding right now, right before our eyes, right before the eyes of the world. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with concluding, concluding remarks uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal. and uh, that was uh, Minnie Riperton uh, from her first album entitled Coming to My Garden. That track was uh, expecting and that's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. We've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of the legendary jazz trumpeter, Kenny Durham. Uh, this is from... The album entitled Afro-Cuban from 1955. This is uh, Abayomi Ezekoway signing off, and have a beautiful week.